everybody. Welcome back to the Managing Miscarriage podcast. I have a couple podcasts coming up with different authors and practitioners. I'm really excited about finally getting um, these different kind of podcast episodes to you. And today's episode is with Julia Bueno. She is an author and her book, The Brink of Being, is I would say it's different than some of the other ones that I have read in that it has an insane amount of references, which my nerdy self likes. Um, There's a couple points that I think are relevant that we didn't talk about in the podcast that I want to point out. Um, She talks about miscarriage in same-sex relationships, which, I mean, this is, what is this? episode number 60-something of my podcast, and I have yet to interview a same-sex couple who went through a miscarriage. Um, It just hasn't come up, and I think that's really a shame because uh, it obviously happens. So she talks about that in the book uh, from her clinical experience, which is really great. And then another interesting thing, I took a couple art history classes just for, you know, to use the right side of my brain while I was in college. And in studying Frida Kahlo, I never came across, or maybe it was because I had a male teacher, they never talked about her painting, Henry Ford Hospital from 1932. And Julia talks about it in the book that I'll just read it to you here. It's on page 236. She said, if you haven't seen Frida Kahlo's painting on metal, Henry Ford Hospital, 1932, I suggest you search for that. It shows the artist lying isolated and naked on a hospital bed with a pool of blood beneath her after her second miscarriage. Her body is clearly ill at ease in this brutal-looking environment, and a single oversized tear sits on her left cheek. I've never really reached out to art, I guess, in specific miscarriage. I mean, maybe I've come across a couple things, but... I think for a lot of you who really appreciate art and uh, connect with that, that might be a really interesting outlet, I guess. And I know many people have shared their own art with me that they create, which is amazing. Um, I appreciate and love looking at art, but uh, making it myself is not so much my forte. But anyway... Today's episode, Julia Bueno, The Brink of Being. Her book is available on Amazon. I'll put the link below um, or above or whatever, wherever it is, however you're listening to the podcast. And I definitely recommend checking it out. Another point to make, um, I'm just flipping through the book and looking, I wrote a note at the end, that this really is for more than just the person going through miscarriage, really anyone would benefit from reading this, but also um, if you have family members or even your partner might um, really get a lot out of reading this. I, I think they would. So yeah, enjoy the episode. Welcome to the Managing Miscarriage podcast. I am Melissa Whitman, founder of the nonprofit One Generation and our current initiative, Managing Miscarriage. I need your help. Let's take this community to the next level. Here's what you can do. Number one, if you like this podcast, please hit pause and take a few seconds to rate it on iTunes. Number two, donate through our website, managingmiscarriage.com. Number three, share your story. 
go to calendly.com slash Melissa Whitman to schedule a time to chat with me. Or, number four, join our Patreon page for over 30 more episodes you can't find anywhere else as well as exclusive content. Patreon.com slash miscarriage. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash miscarriage. All the details are linked in the show notes. Enjoy the episode and thanks for tuning in. I have Julia on with me today from London. She is a wonderful author and she also experienced four miscarriages. So we have the privilege today to hear her share her story as well as all about her book. And she's also a psychotherapist. So we have just this awesome guest, Julia. I'm so excited you're joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. It's a delight. So let's start just because normally on this podcast, um, women are telling their stories. So tell us about your journey through these miscarriages. You had four different ones, and I believe one of them was with twins. Yeah, that's right. I did have four of each one with very different nature from the other. Um, and my first miscarriage was my first pregnancy and um, pretty much inspired um, a lot of the work that I do. Um, I had uh, been uh, fairly recently married before I was trying to conceive and um, pretty impatient. And it, when I did find out I was pregnant at, uh, after about a year, I was super excited, as you can imagine. Um, and uh, pretty early on in the pregnancy, I um, found out I conceived twins. So it was um, that was a bit kind of nerve wracking to find out um, to be sort of thrown into an immediate kind of high risk category. Yeah. And uh, soon, not long after that, actually, I experienced some very heavy bleeding, um, which was pretty terrifying during the, the first few weeks. I was in and out of hospital. Um, trying to work out what was going on and what what seemed to to emerge was that I had um, developed a hemorrhage in the the lining of my womb which I was told at the time and this was 17 years ago so maybe thinking has progressed but I was told at the time that that wasn't an unusual thing to happen with the first pregnancy of a multiple my womb had stretched very quickly okay Um, so the pregnancy was progressing absolutely fine and the babies were thriving, but I just had this um, large patch of bleeding that just took a very long time to heal. But at around 16 weeks of my pregnancy, um, miraculously, the bleeding had stopped and um, I had a, by this stage I was having fairly regular scans. Um, it looked like the hemorrhage had completely healed. So that was a kind of tremendous relief. And, and for the first time in the pregnancy, um, my, my partner and I could kind of relax into really um facing forward and planning our family and thinking about childcare and not not that we hadn't before but it had been a bit fraught um and um it was about a month after that um that i uh by this stage of the pregnancy and i'm sure anybody who'd women i know who have been through a miscarriage before that get very um habituated to to check to check the loo every time you have a pee to see if there's blood because you're so nervous and that and I was still in the habit of doing that but this time I noticed that there wasn't blood but something very strange uh a kind of blob of of flesh-like tissue but I, I I suspected it was something awry and um went to the doctor who 
and explained what I'd seen and flushed away. And she fast-tracked me straight to hospital where um, it was seen that I my, my cervix was begin, beginning to kind of funnel and open, so my, my, it, which sort of threatened very preterm labour. I was only at this stage about 20 weeks pregnant. So um, uh, as you can imagine, that you know, that was too young for my babies to, to be viable. So I had an emergency suture put into my, uh, around, around the neck of my womb, a, a stitch to... to okay. Keep their mm-hmm. yeah, circlage to keep the um, the womb closed as best as it could, and I was sort of sent home to cross my fingers and take it easy, not to have bed rest. Um, I was still working at the stage, and a couple of weeks after my circlage, I woke up in the middle of the night in excruciating agony. Um, oh, no. There was no way round it. I knew that um, I was in labour, so I woke my husband up, and he. Um, uh, I remember him being hopeful and, and hoping it was something else, but he bundled me into the car, um, and which was, if you know London at all, is a crazy thing to do, but you, you do crazy things when you're in a panic. Um, and we drove into central London, back to the hospital that knew us well, um, into the labour ward. And as I stepped in, my, um, my waters broke. Um, and I was ushered into a room and my, my labour began. Um, and this is the, the, the introduction to my book um, and something that not a lot of people equate with miscarriage. I mean, this is very late miscarriages in the 22nd week of pregnancy. I realise there's a difference in the UK and America because we, we term um, miscarriage up to, the, to 23 weeks and six days. I understand in America and Australia, it's 20 weeks. So I would I, my, my my first miscarriage was a miscarriage. If it, if it had happened elsewhere, it would have been a stillbirth. So I, um, I went, I had a, a kind of vaginal delivery of my first baby and many hours later, my, my second baby was delivered um, and uh, they were taken away and I, I was encouraged to, to see them and hold them and meet them. But I was too crazed with grief and lack of sleep and, and a lot of pain relief drugs. I'd been given an epidural and various other drugs I don't even know, but wasn't in my right mind as you can imagine oh, um, yes um and um th- that that was my experience of of my first miscarriage so you were in there you went through a labor and delivery of two babies of two babies and everything went i say normal but of course this isn't normal but no other complications and you were no. able to go home Thank goodness, no other complications, okay. and I, I was able to go home. Um, and um, I, before I left the hospital, I had agreed to um, for my babies to have, to have autopsies. Okay. I was desperate to know what what would have gone wrong. Yeah. And I also also agreed for their um, after that for their bodies to be cremated, um, and the ashes we collected at a later date. Um, I should add, which I do write about in my book, that um, because I think it's important, as I do to sort of emphasise in my book about thinking about the impact of miscarriage on wider, wider members of the family. Obviously, my husband was there with me, but um, while I was in my labour, um, my husband had alerted my mother what was going on, and she she um, came to the hospital and, after the delivery, asked permission to, while I c- couldn't face meeting my babies. Um, a decision I live with great regret, 
um, my mother asked permission if she could, and she did. Um, and oh. so that was that was a well hugely important for her. And she she yeah. I write about this. She was very very intent on wanting to meet her granddaughters, um, and I am forever grateful for that to, to have had that link, and to somehow soothe my own guilt at not meeting them through her. Yeah. Sure. Through her, yeah, through her connection, and um, and she she holds the memory of them, and what she she's subsequently described to me what they look like. Oh. I do have I do have photographs. It took me a very long time to be able to to see them. And one thing, the other thing I write about a lot in my in my book is how how practice has changed. And my first miscarriage happened 17 years ago, and I suspect, well, I I kind of know that that. Um, Thank goodness we've come on a long way in terms of bereavement care for, for parents who um, lose babies in pregnancy. And um, I, I, my experience might well have been very different um, had I had gone through that experience sort of a month ago, as it were. Um, but um, in, terms of, in terms of how uh, giving me more time to consider being with them and the way that the babies were presented for their photographs... Right. Um, we've we've come on a long way, but um, so yes, that was my my first miscarriage, and that was met with huge misunderstanding and well, a lot of silence, and people couldn't cope around it. But that's not it, no miscarriage is normal, and you and I both know that. But mm-hmm. my my story and my story is not individual, and my goodness me, I, that, that there are countless countless women and couples who've been through through their own versions of, of a late loss um, such as mine but I, I, that's not your kind of common or garden idea of a, of a miscarriage for a lot of people's right in their mind so you can imagine the mismatch between what I had to kind of um, convey to what people thought in their mind a, lo- a lot of people were really shocked that I'd been through through a labor right yeah yeah I mean because here in the states that would be considered stillborn so yeah you went home and were just told to rest and recover and I mean you're dealing with this emotionally you're dealing with this physically did they give you an idea of who to talk to or I mean what did you do well um I wasn't um I wasn't told much although to be fair what is true I did have a visit from a bereavement midwife in the community uh, about a week after and, and she was wonderful but thereafter there was no psychological support and one thing that I I write about and still I think the practice has got room certainly in the UK to, to improve upon is that nobody warned me my milk would come in um, and of course this was my first pregnancy and I had absolutely no idea and uh, two or three days after coming home from hospital um, that's what happened. My breasts filled up with milk and I had no idea what to do apart from to kind of poke them with discomfort and, and panic. And of course, poking them would just make it worse. I didn't know that. Um, actually, it was my, you know, my mother who came to rescue. I was staying with her and she'd had three children of her own. So um, she sort of helped me to, to um, get, get rid of the milk, but um, which I didn't want. Um, I've subsequently, you know, over the years, talked to other women who deal with their milk very differently, and um, it can be quite a kind of. For some women, I write about this very moving case study in my book of a woman who, after a, a late loss, 
um, actually kept wanted to keep her milk going, um, partly in honour of her child and to give a kind of structure to her day, but also to, to give it away because milk banks are desperate for milk and milk um, donated milk goes a very long way towards helping other babies. And, you know, I, I get that. I really understand that. But for me at the time, I didn't know any of these options. I didn't know what was going on in my body. And it, it felt like a very kind of cruel, cruel attack, actually, for, for me. Yes, um, especially when it's unexpected. Well, it was really unexpected. And again, things are changing. And I think women are being greater informed There's the, on, the, on the kind of lactation after loss front. Um, there's a little, quite a lot more work to be done over here. But um, I, I, for some women, they might well want to consider the option of, of, of keeping their milk going or giving it away for, for whatever reason. I think it's a very individual choice. And as you understand, you know, miscarriage is a very, very individual experience. Um, but for me, I, I, I just wanted it to go away because it, it was just a sort of cruel reminder of what my what I've been through. Um, so, uh, yeah, but in terms of psychological support, no. Um, and it was a real struggle to, to talk about it. Um, as I'm sure, it, I, I'm guessing here, but a repeated theme that I know from my work over the years that we just don't have uh, the conversational trajectories worked out around uh, pregnancy loss and, it, and a lot of people including myself found it incredibly difficult to to find safe places to talk about this and also this was in my day my after my first loss though the online world hadn't really um, I wasn't really participating in an online online world so I couldn't find support there online and there was very little elsewhere um offline as it were um but um yeah, so much of it is online now that yes right I, oh I, not I, having that i can't even fathom yeah and um there wasn't any anything else really on offer and as i say friends and family found it there was a, a whole spectrum of responses, um, some good, some bad, some indifferent. And I don't think anybody was mean or cruel or, or um, kind of uncaring toward me, but just sort of lacking, lacking in knowing what to say. Did, yes. Does, mm -hmm. does land on someone as, as very, um, as, as very dismissive. And as, as you probably understand, the one, one thing that a lot of us need is an acknowledgement of what has gone on and but when when people find it very difficult to acknowledge it because they're not quite sure how to respond to miscarriage it, it creates a very difficult space to grieve and a lot of people don't understand the grief um so uh yeah that was a very very difficult time for me and what i did and of course the passage of time has allowed me to kind of understand these things better but was to do what was uh, suggested of me by lots of people which is to crack on and get pregnant again um okay and, and is that what you did and that is what i did okay. um, and i was pregnant three months later with my months. my now son oh. um, i i'm not of course with the with the wisdom of hindsight i'm not quite sure how ready i was for that pregnancy but that's what people were telling me and that's what yes. my doctors told me to do <laughs> So, so I cracked on and I, and my, um, uh, I conceived my son three months later and. Do you recall uh, what that pregnancy was like, especially early on? Do you remember? 
I do remember it being uh, incredibly fraught. And in fact, all yes. my pregnancies, all yes. my pregnancies after that were, were incredibly fraught. You can't, I've yet to meet a woman after a miscarriage of whatever gestation um, who gets pregnant again with ease. How, how can you not? Your innocence is robbed. Yeah. I, Those two pink lines are now fear instead of joy. Absolutely. And, and, and again, that kind of oscillation between hope and despair or not wanting to, yes. not wanting to pin any hope and, and the magical thinking that goes with, well, you know, I don't want to jinx things and I better not think this. This might you know, have an effect on my pregnancy. It's amazing, just even from one second to another, what mm. our minds can do during those subsequent pregnancies. And in, in my case, the, you know, there were good reasons also to be fraught because I, I was kept, because of what I'd been through, and it was a bit unclear, it was never clear what went on. And there was the medical opinion, my medical, my the medical opinion given to me at the time after my um, first uh, um, miscarriage was that either I have a weak cervix or what they love to call uh, over here is an incompetent cervix which is a beautifully pejorative term for uh, yes. uh, a woman's body along with, kind of, along with hostile cervix and a hostile mucus and failed pregnancies and all these other pejorative terms but um, whether I had a weak cervix or whether I had just irritated it through the plentiful blood loss they weren't so sure so I was kept, uh, my cervix was kept a very close eye on in my second pregnancy. And actually at 24 weeks, my, it was beginning to be weak again. So I was given another circlage, um, which held my son in until his, till almost 29 weeks, which um, wasn't ideal, but he was born just under 29 weeks um, and spent three months in the neonatal unit uh, as a, a fairly kind of high risk preemie. So that pregnancy was fraught for a kind of lots of reasons, as you can imagine. Yes. So you have a healthy baby at home after the loss of twins. And then what? Well, he wasn't healthy. Oh, <laughs> <Actually>. no. <laughs> he was he was desperately, desperately unwell. And um, uh, he had a, a very... Um, complicated set of, of um, gastric problems and, uh, and, and brain problems. Um, however, um, uh, he is now. <laughs> and we had six years of very intense medical um, interventions and very kind of complicated history. Um, he's a medical miracle. He's a strapping 16-year-old boy and you would never know what he'd been through. It's quite extraordinary. But um, however, he was alive and he was our son and we adored him. And um, alongside his, his very complex needs, he, he thrived in lots of other ways. And I got pregnant again um, when he was about one. And I, in fact, that was a very, very different miscarriage because I lost it at home very painlessly at around six weeks. Um, and couldn't have been sort of low, extremely painful as you can imagine in terms of kind of the medical and the visceral experience it was very different my only other experience of miscarriage had been labor and lactation um and um uh gosh I've, this is all in my book and it's terrible i should remember it but uh, about three four years later um i had another pregnancy that went to about 16 weeks um, and again, um, I was being tracked closely with that one. 
Yeah, so that one's a lot further. So you had yes. a very early one. Had a very early one, and then I thought I'd call it a day. And I think this 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 kind of littered my thinking throughout the whole um, nine years from the mm -hmm. from my first to my last pregnancy. Of I at that point thought, no, do you know what? I don't think I can do this anymore. I'm I'm really happy with my son. He's he was still not out the woods medically. He took a lot of our care and attention and, you know, why let's just focus on this. And then I changed my mind and we changed our mind and gave it another go and got pregnant again. Um, I, I, I suppose, um, I don't know whether luck's the right word, but my first pregnancy was when I was 29. I, I, um, um, I, so 29, 30, and I think it was my 30th birthday. I'd um, recently was sort of telling people I was pregnant so time was on my side fertility wise as it were um, and uh, then we decided again to give it a go and that pregnancy um, was going fine really and um, there was I remember some confusion around dates but it was sort of giving give or two a week but in my uh, but you were out of the first trimester I was after the, out of the first yeah. trimester exactly mm -hmm. and um at around sort of 15, 16 weeks, depending on whose time scale it was, I um, I became very ill uh, one night actually, and I was I was vomiting profusely and um, felt very sick, and I ended up in A and E or what you call ER, um, and and the treatment at the time just sort of put it down to some horrible kind of gastric bug, the 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 baby was still they could find a heartbeat and um, I spent a, a night in in ER on a drip kind of being rehydrated and, and sent home and literally within moment I, mean, I opened the key to the door and walked up the stairs and um, felt a pressure felt a pressure on my cervix and went to the loo and and had a miscarriage over the loo at home and, and lost my baby so that was my third miscarriage. Wow. So you're at home. And was that one painful? Did it feel, because 16 weeks is, is far along. So did that feel like the labor contractions as well? Well, actually, in retrospect, the, the exquisite pain and vomiting that I've been through all night, of course, oh, wasn't, wasn't gastric at all. Yes. Um, but I, I hadn't equated it with it. I wasn't, I wasn't the, the feelings weren't sort of intense contractions in my womb, but I was just um, actually just the throwing up was eclipsing everything else. But the actual passing of my pregnancy and the baby that came out of me was painless. And I write about this in my book. Um, it's quite a kind of haunting experience because I was over the loo and what felt like litres and litres of blood and clots were pouring out of me. And um, I felt, uh, uh, you know, I, I felt the passing of my baby come out of me and I caught it in my hand and I raised it up to look at it and I didn't see a thing. I literally didn't see anything. I just saw that, just saw my hand. And which is an extraordinary uh, kind of trauma response. Wow. Um, and I also write about this that many months later, and I, my, I can't be accurate with my memory, but I think it was about nine months later. I, I saw it in my mind that the, the, the kind of memory came back to me. Of seeing were you in like a hypnotherapy or something? No. Or you were just... No. No. Wow. It was a sort of spontaneous memory from nowhere. I, 
I, I should add that um, I was regularly remembering my, my miscarriages. I was regularly remembering the birth of my twins for years and years and years. Um, so it wasn't unlike me to kind of relive relive those moments and episodes and to think to think about them, but literally kind of seeing it in my mind took months later, months and months later on. Now, as a psychotherapist, 15 years down the line, you know, I understand this better and I understand how our brain responds in trauma and what things get shut down and what things get reactivated. Um, so that was a very extraordinary and, and not, not something, although a lot of my um, stories, you know, I resonate uh, with others that I've heard over the years, but not that one. Um, so that was uh, curious, not pleasant, but interesting. But I, I saw this, my tiny weenie baby, um, perfectly formed, but very, very, very small, as you can imagine. I cupped it in my mm -hmm. hand. Um, and after that experience, I said never 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 again I'm not going to put myself through this I'm not going to get pregnant again yes um and I think it was less than a year later that I said to my partner one one more time let's give it a go um and I did get pregnant and I um everything was sort of fine in terms of, well, obviously not fine in, in that it was extremely fraught. Um, I felt incredibly sick. I had terrible morning sickness that all my other pregnancies had had. So I couldn't really take that as a positive sign. Okay. Um, so for each one, you had significant morning sickness. Terrible. And actually, okay. curiously, this sickness, this was my fourth pregnancy, was the worst. I was incredibly unwell. And I, I remember all I could really stomach was... Um, sugary sweets which is something I wouldn't dream of eating normally um, but I went for my um, I'd had a very early scan that, that had shown fine I think around eight weeks and then I had my 12-week scan which had shown I'd had a mis miscarriage and the baby had died probably sort of a couple of weeks before um, so you're in there getting the scan so this is actually the first one that you find out at a scan exactly, exactly. okay and I was on my own. I think curiously, I'd said to oh, my no. husband, it would be fine. You know, he, we, we'd had gazillion scans over these pregnancies and I'd had the one earlier on and everything would be fine. And I was so sick. I thought, no, this one's going to be fine. You know, I knew I was going to have more scans because of my cervix. I knew that I'd um, actually, I'm really sorry. I've missed a beat. <laughs> um, after... Um, some some I'm, I'm now some time between those last two miscarriages I was uh, offered the chance of being on a trial for an abdominal cerclage so, oh interesting so, so after so you had a miscarriage at 16 weeks yes the one that you had at home and then you had this uh no sorry the abdominal seclusion happened before the one I'd had at home so okay. um, uh, um before that before that um someone in the hospital who knew about me and knew that I'd had these these rescue sutures before said I'm doing recruiting women for this um, research uh, would you like to have what's called an abdominal circlage which is a, a, a stitch that gets inserted much higher up um the cervix it can't be done vaginally it has to be done above um, abdominally so from above so you can get much higher up and the idea being that it would have a much better grip <laughs> and, and it's it done while you're pregnant or no uh, okay 
when I'm not pregnant and I had to have it um, under general anaesthetic, so um, like it, it, the same little kind of incision is made as a laparoscopy. Okay. And it was done by keyhole surgery. So this uh, this um, stitch was put at the beginning, uh, right at the top of my cervix. So when I lost the baby, uh, the subsequent one, I was extremely nervous that it managed to kind of get through the cerclage, but I was very nervous that it had weakened my stitch somehow, as you can imagine. So I was yes. always going to be closely monitored. Um, and then at 12 weeks, I, um, I had a mis miscarriage and I opted to go home and let it pass naturally. I was told that, you know, that the stitch would allow that to happen naturally. Um, so even though it, the stitch was there, it yes. would be able to dilate enough to pass? Yes, apparently okay. so. Um, okay. However, that didn't happen. Oh, gosh. Um, and um, after about a week, and I was getting iller and iller and iller with um, with uh, nausea, I um, elected to have what is called over here an ERPC, another bit of vernacular that, that is particularly jarring for okay. an evacuation of retained products at conception, which um, is a pretty clunky medical term. Yeah, that's a pretty that, raw that, term. <laughs> it, yeah, that sticks in the throat because I don't think many people uh, with a yearned for pregnancy would describe their baby as a product of conception. Um, however, that is what I ended up having. So, so my fourth miscarriage ended up in surgery. So, I've I, I've sort of covered all the bases. I think of in terms of um, well, not all of them, but I've had very very um, experiences of, of miscarriage. Um, after that pregnancy, as you can imagine, never, never, never again am I going to have a baby um until i decided one more go and i had one more go and despite i um I, by this stage i'd been pretty assured that my stitch through scans that my stitch my abdominal cerclage was still there and in good place and would hold you know should hold a pregnancy um and i conceived for the last time and i was scanned regularly and all went well i had a tiny bit of bleeding around 16 weeks and I thought oh here we go again oh, no. um, but that cleared up just in one day and couldn't really understand what through scans couldn't understand what had happened and then my son Johan was delivered by cesarean because my stitch won't allow for a vaginal delivery um, at term and what he is now a beautiful and, ending yeah he's oh. a nine-year-old nine boy um, playing football in the garden as I speak just perfect oh well I was gosh. extremely blessed with with and I'm extremely blessed with uh him obviously and the abdominal cerclage that held him tight yeah I'd not heard of that before so that's that's um that's right I'm, I'm not sure what that it's it's definitely available over here in the UK and I I couldn't give you the party line I'm not a doctor on on when it's um when it is recommended for women but i i suspect it is for it as i understand it is for women who who have had late loss okay. and and a, and a diagnosis of an incompetent cervix um mm. but then you know it's it's a fairly invasive um stitch as i say it has to be kind of put in a, by surgery um abdominally so they don't it's not regularly uh, meted out so going through this process, I mean, this was over a number of years. At what point did you, did it ever cross your mind? I want to write a book 
And at what point did you become a therapist? Um, well, just dealing with the second question first, I um, I had mentioned that sort of right right after my first mis- miscarriage, I'd sort of put my toe in the water of, of retraining. I began okay. my professional life as a lawyer, actually, and then I left the law um, unclear about what I wanted to do next and fell into a sort of writing position. But after my first miscarriage, I went into my own personal therapy um, to deal with my to, to deal with my grief and um, other stuff that had been activated by that. And that really galvanized me to to retrain as a therapist and practice myself. So I, um, in fact, through all my reproductive story that you've um, listened to, I was practicing, uh, I, I trained and qualified and practiced as a therapist alongside that. And so I, I would say that my experiences sort of really kick-started something that was inside me already, but I became quite determined to, to support people in, dis, in distress, and I was very interested in um, psychological processes around pregnancy. Um, but writing the book is an interesting one. Um, I did write about my miscarriage, um, my first miscarriage, for a national newspaper over here. It was quite a kind of well-known big newspaper, um, and... I sort of tussled with the idea of kind of writing more then, but um, I'm glad that I didn't um, pursue it any further. In fact, I haven't revisited that piece. This was before it was kind of would have been published online, so I've, I've lost it. But um, I suspect it was very, um, it, it would have had a very different tone to how I write, write about it now because I was super angry and super riddled with grief. Um, you were still in it. I was still in it. Yeah. And, I think it's no coincidence that it's it took me well the best part of 15 years to um to to kind of put a proposal together and find an agent and then and write about it in the way that i have um i had to metabolize a hell of a lot of my own story but also i had to be sure i think to kind of approach all the material and in in my book there's sort of um clinical material from my practice but but also research from, you know, I, I read a lot about uh, psychological research and historical research, but I think I needed to come to all of that with with a bit of distance and, and calm and and peace. And I'm going to use all these words and measure um, and not to be too sort of I didn't want to be too, although it is a polemical book and I and I and I do have some urgency in there and I do want people to to be educated from it um i i personally think that that message is delivered delivered better from me anyway um without it being too too angry and and um raw which i think i I was for a number of years so i think is a really important um note for for those listening because a lot of the listeners are still in it whether it's been just a couple of weeks or a couple of months. And I often hear, you know, oh, it's been three or four months and it just, I still think about it or I'm still upset about it. So you guys, everyone listening, that's okay. I know I say it every episode, but that is okay. It's okay. And it's interesting. You, you, you remind me that um, I've been very um, flattered by, I've, t- I've talked a lot about my book since it's been published and, uh, a few times people have asked me quite frequently actually did you find the book cathartic um, and the short answer to that one is no I didn't because 
grief doesn't end. It, it, um, I'm really blessed and I, and I do not underestimate how lucky I am to have two living healthy boys and of course they're very soothing and I'm, I'm, I'm very delighted to have them in my life but it doesn't cancel out the pain that we went through and it doesn't, um, it, it doesn't rub off the edges of the pain that can still bite quite hard so actually writing the book was really painful to revisit those episodes. Um, and didn't sort of tie them up, tie up those episodes in, in a neat bow. And so, so I, I, I'm with you, you know, it's, it's okay to, to still feel crappy about it. And in my case, years and years later, but um, I think for, for speaking only personally as I can, that's, that, that I feel that's the price of, of the pregnancies that I loved and the babies that I loved and didn't make it. Yes. So mm-hmm. while it's it's uncomfortable, I I don't want I don't want to make it all okay. <laughs> I hope that makes sense. It does. I actually feel similar, right? Because we have miscarriages, and um, you just want to be done with it, especially once you have been blessed with a, he- a healthy baby. You're like, okay, you know, you kind of just want to shut the door on that chapter. And coming back with the nonprofit, and um, you know, every week I revisit women's stories it doesn't it doesn't necessarily make it easier but it's so necessary so for you writing this book i can only imagine how raw that was but how many women it's going to help i mean i can't even fathom it's, i hope so it's I wonderful really, wonderful i really do hope so and um you know i also hope my 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 equal hope is um that actually that it educates uh the the many 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 who just simply have no idea about the about about the possible experience of miscarriage i couldn't possibly capture every experience every single one is is different from the other but there is a lot of misinformation and misunderstanding and not knowing and i would love it for uh you know someone who has no intention of ever getting pregnant to read it or a young man to read it or um, ju- just as many people as as possible, as well as it being soothing to others, that's that 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 means the world to me. But really, I'd love it to educate um, those who know nothing about it. And but but it's certainly what I really hope to to convey is is that this is normal. This is normal to feel um, what you're feeling, and uh, which, of course, I I don't know what what, what this in particular, but but. There's a great commonality uh, of feelings as well as an individuality, and, and I impress upon that that it's a, 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 it can be a very profound experience of of loss and envy and sadness and anger and 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 so the normalisation process is there. But also I do talk about when there are tipping points, when actually you shouldn't just this isn't just a, nor- a quote-unquote kind of normal process of grief that will run its course, but you are entitled to seek extra support when when you aren't coping, and that's okay too, and that's appropriate. Why should you have to to suck it all up like we have to suck up so much? Yeah, exactly. Uh, reproductive pain, um, both both physically and psychologically. I mean, I I, I also emphasise the kind of su- the, the visceral aspects of miscarriage and. I don't think it's okay that women should be sent home with paracetamol to to pass their miscarriages and 
be you know to, to be expected to, to suck up physical pain as well as psychological pain so yes I also talk about about the fact that actually um, miscarriage can lead to uh, to clinically recognizable anxiety and depression um, as well as sort of healthy grief but also the that that um, you know you run the we 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 know that it's uh, the research is there that especially repeated or recurrent miscarriage can um, be a risk factor in some serious mental health issues, and those should be taken seriously and absolutely seek support. Um, you know, don't think that you're going mad or you're being over the top for feeling things very very gravely and having your life interrupted or affected by by that. That's that's um, you know an appropriate response just in, in the sense that depression and anxiety is an appropriate response to lots of hideous life events thank you so much for your time today and for sharing i can tell that there's just so much more in your book than what we could even scratch the surface on today um so the brink of being you guys it'll be linked in the description julia bueno the brink of being must read well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And, and all the work that you do as well is, is so valuable. So thank you. Hey, you stay connected. Find us on Instagram at Managing Miscarriage, on Facebook at Miscarriage Nonprofit. And don't forget to download the free e-guide on our website, managingmiscarriage.com. Please rate and review this podcast to help other women find us and consider sharing your story. Hang in there, mama.